you to those that have joined today um, at this one of the People Health Movements. For me, it's very cold here in Cape Town, and thank you for those who are dealing with issues of load shedding and other challenges at a time like this. Today, the session that we are going to be hosting and I will be moderating is titled Stigma, COVID-19 and Human Rights Lessons uh, Learned from HIV. Uh, my name is James Pandiran and I'm one of the uh, Deputy Secretaries of the People's Health Movement in South Africa and I will just be moderating this discussion. We have some very important speakers who have agreed to speak to us today, three of them who will each be given uh, 15 to 20 minutes to discuss their area of expertise around stigma and their own experiences of COVID-19 at a time like this. And then we also have some other recovery stories that will come in at the end. So just to set the scene before I introduce our three speakers, um, we will be hearing from three names that you would have seen on the advertisements. The first is Nkadisa Kabadi, who is a COVID-19 survivor, a leading activist and a, a district organizer of the Movement for Change and Social Justice. Nkadisa is involved in the treatment action campaign as a treatment literacy educator. We will then also hear from Lebohang Ramafoko, she is a social and behavioral change expert with 25 years experience, having led multiple interventions as an executive responsible for Soul City, the media outputs that she ran as CEO, and currently is the CEO of the Takano Atlantic Fellows for Health Equity. We also have uh, Bevel Lucas, who has been an activist since his student days in 1980, when he was involved in anti-capitalist apartheid struggle. He later joined the workers' struggles and was an organizer for Sakaru. Forgive me if I get this acronym wrong. The SA Catering Commercial Allied Workers Union. He is currently a leader of the occupation of the old Woodstock Hospital, now called Sissy Gould House, which is providing accommodation to more than 300 families. Comrade uh, Bevel is also a COVID-19 survivor himself. So before we start, just to set the scene in the discussion, we will be speaking about stigma and also just some of the aspects of learning with reference to the HIV epidemic, uh, which South Africa has faced and continues to face. So at a time like this, it's important to balance the narrative that we have. It's seven months into 2020, a new disease has appeared on the landscape, and there's a lot of associated fear and associated stigma with regards to that. In the beginning, what we saw is panic, people not being aware of, of what their risks were and what to do in a time like this. And opposition to panic is, is of course, denial. Uh, those that believe that they're not at risk and that they therefore don't need to practice any of the precautions to, to help themselves and protect their communities. So what we do know, of course, is that COVID-19 or SARS-2-CoV virus is an infectious virus that spread through droplet transmission and can cause a respiratory infection. And we do know that the vast majority of cases of people who get sick, patients and people, will have mild symptoms to no symptoms. And this is an important point to state up front because it challenges the narrative of, of this disease that, that, will, that is deadly in the sense that there's no hope. Uh, and I think that's an important narrative to spread because it allows us to take ownership over how we how we act as individuals. 
up to 80% of those people who are or more admitted to hospital will recover and return home. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that there are people that are losing their lives in this epidemic and pandemic. And depending on, on the numbers, that, that mortality rate is around 1%. And we have to recognize that we can't think of ourselves as being immune um, or, or protected from this virus simply by virtue of our age or our lack of comorbidities because we are all in this uh, situation together. And it's about coming to a place where we are reaching community solidarity to protect those around us who may be at risk and to protect ourselves because we don't always know how uh, this will interact in our own bodies. The, the, so that's the, the stigma aspect. The relation between COVID-19 and, and HIV is, is, is one that's also to be discussed. So I'll leave off the medical aspects of, of it and speak more to what the differences between the two pandemics are. And I would like if the speakers could also comment on, on some of these thoughts just to set the conversation. One is, is the government response. What we saw at the time of HIV was a state level response of denialism of the connection between the HIV virus and AIDS and also of a rejection of the evidence around antiretroviral treatment. So one difference that we could potentially look at is a denialist government versus a government that at least accepts the science, but how do we improve that implementation of its response? The second point is one that I've mentioned, is that in HIV, we were able to look at and rally around a, a treatment in the form of antiretrovirals, Whereas with COVID-19, it's much more systems level challenge to be able to treat the illness. It requires hospital and primary healthcare infrastructure, as well as high care facilities, oxygen, et cetera. And so it might be that there are even further challenges in, in this pandemic around how we get the system together. And then the third one that I've thought of is that at a time like this, when we as People's Health Movement represent a people grounded, people centered, campaign around diseases in the country, it's difficult to gather in public and to build that mass movement that we did see in HIV, uh, in the time of HIV uh, arising with the Treatment Action Campaign and other organizations, Soul City, for example, who were able to advocate and build that groundswelling of people looking to um, counter stigma and build a narrative that is positive. And it's difficult to do that at a time when gatherings are restricted and access to even to webinars like this is, is difficult for many people. So that's the third point. And how do we then go from spaces such as this, getting community level education and mobilization at a time like this? So just to, to end off my, my side, there's obviously two approaches, two broad approaches that we could take to this to getting that community level understanding and challenging stigma. And the one is an approach of fear that we say to people that unless you obey these rules that have been imposed, you will die or there will be deaths. And people out of that fear, we hope that they will listen to what is the public health messaging of the time. And that's obviously a, a very problematic approach in that it disenfranchises people 
and also has a lot of ramifications in terms of stigma, stigmatizing and discriminating against people who have COVID-19, against people who use masks or want to social distance, or even against those, even the fear of COVID-19 in the absence of a real case can cause um, poor responses. And then the other approach that we would envision is one of taking the, the power back. And that's through community solidarity, ensuring that people are aware of the details of the virus. It's not a virus that is shrouded in mystery. They are aware of what they can do as themselves to protect uh, their families and to protect their loved ones, but also to protect those vulnerable people in the communities who are at higher risk. And in that way, we hope that people will be responding not out of fear, but out of a sense of, of community solidarity and working together to tackle this external uh, challenge. So with that brief introduction, I'm going to call on the first of our speakers. I'm just looking at in the chat to see if everyone is online. They'll each be given about 15 to 20 minutes just to speak. So I think, could we start with uh, Bevel Lucas? Would you mind uh, going ahead? Bevel, as, as I've said, is a uh, was an anti-capitalist, anti-apartheid um, activist, and is currently one of the leaders of the structures at Sissy Ghoul House, and is also a COVID-19 survivor. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be with you and to share with you an experience. And, and also, I, I want to say that as a housing activist, the COVID virus has enabled us to look at the question of housing broader than just the physical structure, but looking at the question of housing in the context of what are all the other social elements in the environment where housing is to be placed, developed, constructed, and all of that. I think it's very clear that for the poor and the working class in particular, we are on our own. The state in its current form uh, very clearly has not found an answer and is incapable of finding an answer in the current uh, circumstances that we are. I think my experience in organizing within the Susigul House, we've been extremely fortunate in that we've been proactive prior to the lockdown when the notion of the lockdown, the, the virus, and the safety measures uh, had to be considered, we immediately got going as far as the leadership that existed in the structure of this occupation to have a conversation, to have a discussion, to begin to look at what are the implications. I think we've been extremely fortunate in many circumstances in that we are occupying a hospital. And one of the foundation stones that is on the premises speaks to the place being developed since 1901. And I think in the early 1900s, there was a plague. And so when the design of the hospital was developed, it clearly took into account, uh, should there be an epidemic of any kind, uh, how the hospital would function. And, and we are very fortunate in that, in that context that every single section of the hospital 
can be individually cordoned off, and within that section too, certain sections can be further cordoned off. One of the things that that we did immediately prior to to the uh, epidemic is to have a lot of proactive education, sanitizing methods, uh, compulsion of washing of, of hands, general cleaning up in the occupation, having different meetings with different sections of the occupation, women, youth, and all of that. And what role they could play in ensuring a fair and clean space and how collectively minimize the potential threat of the uh, virus. We've been very fortunate in, in that we've been able to produce meals, hot meals, twice a day. People have water, electricity. So the four elements that for us, uh, and, and this is without any state support at all, it's the production of food, the access to water, to electricity, and the educational process. But the educational process was in the context of the defense of the occupation, but also in, in relation to the whole question of housing and the failure by the state, whether it's, it's at the municipal level, at the provincial level, or even at the national level, there is often very little support. We, in turn, tried to get some screening going, and we were able to get the screening going through the indulgence of, of some medical professionals who are activists who support what we are doing, and via that we were able to get a screening process going. Of the screening, we never got a single one uh, individual who needed to be considered for a test. I, uh, being a diabetic and a heart condition patient, took ill and felt very uncomfortable and then decided to seek medical attention. And as a result of that, we then also chose to go for the test. The considerations that we had is that should I be positive? What do we do as a leader? And as an activist, and also given the number of people that, that we live with. So those considerations were discussed in between the timing of the test and the outcome of the results of the test. We then considered that, look, if I should be positive, maybe it's better that I go into isolation off-site, out of the occupation. Even the size of the number of people that I live with Although the occupation does allow me to isolate individually within my room, however, it would have been very difficult to not be in contact with people, not to attend to some of the concerns that the occupiers or the residents, as we refer to ourselves, might have. And so the better option would be to go off-site for isolation. The question then was where? Fortunately, at the time that we got the results, we were informed that there is an isolation site called the Blue Lagoon Hotel. We then made applications through our medical support, and I was accepted, and I then left on the Monday to the isolation place. There, it was quite clear that it's, it's not a hospital in the sense that you would be examined or that you would have access. You had limited access to medical personnel who would essentially be contactable via the telephone or when the uh, meals were brought around, you would be asked, how are you feeling? 
can we take your temperature, how's your sugar level, and that type of oral type of engagement. But there would be no physical contact in the uh, isolation center. I was sharing a room with another person who was also positive, and he was from Missiles Plain. And we were sharing about what was happening out in Missiles Plain, and it was horrific. And I think in many respects, we are extremely fortunate in the occupation that people have many opportunities not to congregate and to avoid coming into contact with any positive person directly. And they, he, for example, had to go into a tent with I don't know how many uh, hundreds of other people to sit and wait for a test to be done. When these results came, he then fortunately also was brought to the uh, Blue Lagoon Hotel. I think one of the things that was very clear whilst at the hotel is that the administration of any kind of medicine would have been self-reliant. You would have to do that on your own. Um, fortunately, because you were supplied with three meals per day, you did not need to go anywhere. We had no contact with, with anybody else who was in the hotel. The meals itself was very challenging. Being a chef, it, it was also uh, very challenging to understand what kind of nutritional value or nutritional planning was considered, given that you're asking people to recover, you're asking people to build their immune systems, you are asking people to become stronger and to become healthier. Just to give you an example, on the first night that I was there, we got a hamburger with some kind of cheese that I really don't even know what type of cheese it was, and with five chips. Now, if that is going to be the nutrition for a patient, it says a lot as to what kind of planning had gone into uh, this particular site. I think one of the lessons is that a lot of the isolation sites was geared towards individuals. It bothered me that how would an isolation site be accommodating a family, or even three people of one family? Would it be possible? Um, If not, why is it essentially uh, looked at or considered as an individual uh, uh, need that has to be taken care of? I think also, the whole notion of how at the community level do we begin to consider what should happen at a community level. For example, in the occupation, we had identified a particular site that had water, that had electricity, that a small kitchenette could be set up, we could move in beds, and it also had two functional toilets. And if we had a, a multiple number of residents that had been confirmed positive and wanted to move into a communal space, that would have been possible. So that's the kind of planning we engaged in in the occupation. What we also have to consider within the occupation is what if it is a family who wishes to remain in the uh, uh, space which they occupy and how would that relate to the other people around them? I think We were extremely fortunate in having had a proactive stance of education, of providing meals, of cleaning, 
as a collective in the various sections, it was a little bit easy to deal with what if it is someone. And fortunately or unfortunately, I was the first one to be tested uh, positive, but I also chose to declare. I think one of the things that I adopted is my responsibility as an activist and as leader within the occupation that it would be best to declare and then for people to have serious considerations that if Uncle Bevel got to, what, what is the potential that I might get it? But also, how do we ensure, because Uncle Bevel was about the mask, about sanitizing, about the gloves and all of that, and yet he contracted the coronavirus. So I think that the stigma was really there only to be seen when I turned out of isolation to the occupation. Just to give you an example, some of the kids that I always have a conversation with and, and engage with, and one of them asked, Uncle Bevel, have you got the virus? And I replied positively, yes. He says, but you didn't look the same. Is anything wrong with you? I said, no, there's nothing wrong. I am better and I'm come to stay back. And then he was like very happy and off we went. But someone must have had a conversation with him. And I don't know what was the conversation between him and his parents that he understood that he needed to ask me. But having spoken to him, he then became sort of uh, satisfied. But I think also with the adults, it became quite an issue. You could feel the uncomfortability. And it was up to me how to navigate that. How to navigate that as a leader, how to navigate that to help them to understand that we are in it, all of us, and how we manage it is the real test. I think the fact that we take an activist approach in as far as caring for everybody, rebuilding a community that people have been displaced from is, was our main consideration. And then having to talk through some of the health issues, for example, those people who had underlying uh, conditions like myself, how do we begin to engage with them? Do we make sure that they are taking their own prescribed medication? Are they taking it regularly? Are they having access to meals? Is anybody else checking on them? How are they feeling? So that kind of engagement helped in a very significant way so that when I returned, I could still talk to people. I could still tell people that, look, I'm okay, but I'm not yet feeling very strong. I need more time to recover. And so it became a little bit easier to navigate. In another situation, there was a stigma towards some other occupier in that they were not allowed to leave the occupation. They were restricted to their room and had to be brought meals and all of that. And it was in the section that they were in that it was a contentious issue about them staying in their uh, room and not having moved out of the occupation, unlike Uncle Bevel, who moved out of the occupation. It was possible for me as an individual, yes, to move out, but it would not have been so easy for a family to move out, nor would the isolation spaces have provided full accommodation for the family, as opposed to me as an individual. Maybe just to say also, one of the things that was very fortunate for us here in the occupation is that we had a network. 
and we had a network with a number of different teachers, of individuals who we could call upon at any time for any kind of donation or support that we needed for the production of our meals and all of that. So the network that we had built around the occupation was an extremely solid pillar and we could always rely upon activists and other comrades who supported the occupation to continue to give support and donations in various ways. Thank you very much, Comrade Bevel, for those very important insights, particularly speaking as someone who's positioned both as a, a patient and as a community organizer. I think I would next like to call on Lebohang Ramafoko, if you would like to go ahead. As I've said, uh, Lebohang will be speaking on some of the strategies used by Seoul City a few ago, a few years ago, on how they managed to tackle stigma around HIV AIDS and what sort of implementation plan should we take to address stigma around this new epidemic, COVID-19. So Lebohang, please feel free to go ahead. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. So I think for me, the first thing when we speak about stigma and um, whether or not people should speak out and come out um, is that we need to understand what is the risk benefit to the individual and what is the risk and benefit to the society at large. We also need to understand that stigma happens within a context where we need to ask ourselves, firstly, what do people know? So what we know is that we are dealing with a deadly virus. The issue with virus is that it is an unseen eventuality. And as in your introduction, James, what is different right now is the fact that the government was quick to listen to scientists and the government was then quick to take action. But also, you know, communication is one thing. You can tell people there is a virus. Its name is COVID-19. And these are, you know, the ways in which you get it. But uh, in the minds of all of us, the virus then gets associated with the effects that it has in the lives of people. And one of the things that drove the stigma with HIV was that because of the mode of transmission, which was mainly and generally around sex, the mode of transmission, meaning that the virus was then not only a virus that anybody else could get, but its association with sex is the one place where you saw stigma uh, being driven. And the forget setting aside, but not forgetting uh, the government's response, the whole issue about at community level, you know, uh, the fact that it's associated with sex, which in itself is taboo in many societies, became how people started othering others. So if you have to come out and you basically say, I've got HIV, the risk that you then suffer is the risk of how you got it because the virus then got very closely associated with sex. What we are seeing with COVID is that COVID is associated with restrictions. So again, there is a virus on a very cognitive 
rational level, we understand it's an unseen virus. And, you know, some people will, will, will get it. You wash your hands, you know, and you keep a, a physical distancing, etc. But in fact, the way all of us are experiencing the virus is because our lives are restricted. And therefore, what we do as a society, because the virus seems so abstract, for lack of a better word, is who do I blame? Who do I associate this virus with? So you saw that, you know, um, promiscuity or, or promiscuous people were then blamed, for lack of a better word, as the people who are bringing this HIV virus that is now challenging us to change our uh, sexual relations and sexual behavior. Similarly, the, you know, the, the narrative around there's a virus, this is how it is spread, because it is associated with restriction, we are seeing, in my view, the kind of reactions that we are seeing around, okay, so who do I blame for bringing the virus uh, close to me? It is that association that for people they are giving the virus, uh, you know, that, that they are making with the virus. But I also think that we need to understand that uh, there is communication. And I want to come back to this issue of communication back. But there is also change. Because in a lot of ways, both viruses, if we are to learn from HIV, are requiring change at a very normative level. HIV uh, necessitated that in our relationships, we have conversations about sex, we, um, you know, uh, confront a number of conversations that we were probably, you know, we found difficult to speak about. And I think for me, what I still see in what we call communication is that we still have the notion that change is a linear process. That once you give a message, that the change will happen. You know, all you need to do, and I think it's the easier part that you need to do. You need to tell people, physically distance, uh, use a mask, wash your hands, etc. And we have seen that if you only limit the messages, your communications to messaging, In fact, it can drive stigma because the unintended consequence, which is what we always wanted to guard against when we were communicating around HIV, is what is the unintended consequence of some of the messages. And the consequence could be, if you got it, it's because you did not comply. So in the minds of, particularly at a community level, you got it because you did not comply. Because in fact, In trying to simplify the communication, we've probably simplified it to a point where without intending to do so by sending out factual information, we've simplified it to a point where it it will then go without saying that those who got it did not comply. So, you know, in my own experience, for an example, I have had uh, my own sister get covered. And without even a discussion, one of the ways in which she was communicating to us that she, you know, she tested positive with her family was to quickly also communicate that 
but she also did not behave recklessly. And I think for me, it was telling in the sense that it then said the association of, you know, to prevent COVID, you do one, two, three, four. And when she got it, what was more important for her with getting it was to communicate that she was not reckless. And therefore, that then becomes an indicator in this one story around how simple messaging can actually also drive stigma if that is all that we do. But I think the same with HIV, we are seeing the same things with COVID, that issues of race and class are playing themselves out. And I think uh, at the time that one was at Soul City, creating all of the Soul City uh, materials, and I will tell you how we then dealt with stigma at Soul City, uh, we did not have social media. And I think what social media is doing right now is that it is actually creating a blessing and a curse. A blessing in a sense that those that want to communicate with different people and different audiences and send messages and even send help can do that without navigating a complex system. However, that is also how any other news and communication goes around, which really can counter even some of the most nuanced and well-thought-out communications. So one of the things that you are seeing in some groups, particularly because our messaging and our communications, especially from government, did not even, was not nuanced enough to make space for issues of race and class, that in some sectors of the uh, population, interestingly, also associating the virus with restriction, they've now started saying, you know, it is the poor, it is the ignorant. Look at them. They are full at shopping centers. They are full at different places. And you even saw it almost right at the beginning of the lockdown, that the reporting seemed to suggest that those that cannot comply are doing so because they are ignorant. And uh, any messages and communications that was not nuanced, any public education that was not linking issues of race, of class, of inequality, seemed to then as well stigmatize. Because, of course, the message was stay at home. So if you are not staying at home, you are ignorant. And because largely people who could not stay at home, who could not self-isolate, were mainly black and poor, suddenly you saw, particularly in social media spaces, that even the understanding of the virus and the association of the virus was stigmatized against poor and, you know, around race and around black people, uh, black people. So for me, what is important to note and to learn from is, um, before I even speak about how we have done it, uh, in my experience at Soul City, is the fact that we also need to ask ourselves, who are the communicators? So even at the time of HIV, a lot of the kind of messaging that had to counter stigma or the public education that had to counter stigma because it goes beyond messaging, had to navigate an extremely complex set of circumstances. 
So I've spoken about social media and the challenges that it is bringing up now in COVID, less so than with the time of HIV and how that strikes, drives stigma. While journalists and journalism is important and news are important, but news are also driven by profit. So in some of the ways in which some of the stories are being told, you know, in fact, what has happened right now with issues of COVID and where newsrooms are faced with is that their headlines have followed social media. So when social media comes out, you know, they are leading. And often they are able to get to audiences but do not have the kind of public health expertise that they should have. And how does that also drive the stigma and the narrative, you know, um, that may be creating um, stigma? But also communications, which normally is, uh, is what is used in government, is also, you know, many people will advertise us and other people to communicate. It's not social and behavior change communications. Because social and behavior change communications is, is located within an ecological model, which is saying communication is not only about what is the message. You know, it is also about saying what are the systems, the social and structural barriers to change to happen. So for an example, we've been working on a a program and I've been advising, uh, you know, other key players around changing burial rights and rituals uh, because funerals are one place where, you know, the people are contracting the virus. Uh, so on one level, you need guidelines for traditional uh, uh, leaders and faith leaders to say what are now the new protocol around COVID. But if all you did was to say to individuals, bury within 48 hours, you can't view the body, etc., and they agreed and they accepted, and that is where you ended up with your public education, You are living out in South Africa in particular, and we are also trying to learn from how countries that had Ebola are responding. You are also living out the insurance companies where people wait to bury, not because they don't support the message, but because, you know, um, Old Mutual and the others where people are saving money for funerals need a death certificate. Uh, If somebody is dying in Cape Town, the person is staying in the Eastern Cape, they may need to get it before they can claim uh, money. If you leave funeral undertakers and also their insurances. I'm using this example to basically say we need to move from a public education that I think is easier to do but can drive stigma, which is what is the message? What is the two, you know, it's like what we did with HIV, ABC abstain, be faithful, and compromise. And we poured a lot of money into that, but we were really not going down and saying, what are the social and structural issues that enable or inhibit uh, behavior? And anything that goes out that really does not take that into consideration, for me, is problematic, and it drives stigma. And certainly, uh, I'm very happy that uh, uh, Bevel spoke, and I hope Nertisa will also speak. For us, what story enables us uh, you to do, and that is why we use popular drama at Soul City, is that it gives any virus a human face, but it's also able to nuance the messages 
and show the complexity of change. Because if you do not do that, what you then risk doing is to basically perpetuate the whole issue that those who get it did something wrong. They are the ones that are bringing this issue into our community and our lives are restricted because of the wrong things that they have done. You are also able to really link a lot of other structural issues, access to housing, access to water, people, you know, and and a whole lot of other issues that I think uh, uh, colleagues in this call um, are very familiar with, which gets a lot lost in the way that messaging is that is all that we do in our public education. So the use of story, I really uh, want to uh, thank and commend those that are speaking as uh, uh, people who, uh, you know, contracted uh, corona, because I actually think that that is an important strategy. But also locating and linking COVID within the bigger context of a rights-based um, approach. And I think that's also something that we've learned with HIV, is that the narrative in South Africa, and I understand that the politics were, were different, but the narrative, at least around HIV, also changed when, with organizations like the TAC, you saw that HIV was no longer about something that you must be ashamed to getting, but it was also advancing health as a basic human right for, 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 for South Africans. And unless you locate any virus within that framework, you are going to end up with one people blaming those that have it, stigmatizing it, but also ignoring the reality of inequity in South Africa. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lebukhan, for that in-depth analysis. I've been taking notes myself on what you spoke of. Just as a reminder to everyone, Nkadisa Kabazi is a COVID-19 survivor, a leading activist and organizer of the Movement for Change and Social Justice, MCSJ, and has been involved in the TAC as a treatment uh, literacy educator. I think we can move on to the next part. There are some other COVID survivors COVID champions. We have three of them that have been identified. All right. Um, can I speak? Yes, please go ahead, Zanele. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Zanele Nigani. I'm from Cape Town. I stay in Langa. I'm a COVID survivor. I contracted the, the virus in, in June. And immediately after I received my results, I I'm one if, if she can organize a, a place where I can I go for isolation. I was so fortunate immediately. Uh, I think it was only after one day I got the place in, in, in Lagoon Beach. That is where I, I went for isolation room with a lady who happened nest in Tiger Bay. And she also had these underlying uh, conditions. She had uh, diabetes and, and high blood pressure. And she was very scared. She said to me, she was so glad to have someone with me to share with. We were sharing experiences because she was a COVID patient, which is to where most of the people are dying. Right? So she really helped me. To, to conquer this uh, virus, I must say, 
me as well, as she was saying, I also helped her in so many ways because she was scared and I had to comfort her. And she was also stigmatized in the community, especially when the, the, the health department came to, to fetch her. The neighbors were, were staring uh, through the windows, asking questions and all that. And some of them want their children to with her kids, telling them that don't go to that house because that house, that is a COVID house. Whereas with me, I never experienced that. Even where neighbors, when the health department came to fetch me, and they didn't ask anything. And uh, I experienced uh, an isolation uh, place was that no one was to, to, to inspect where is there nothing that you need and all it. The only thing you will hear is the, is the knock by the door. They would just shout to say there is a Two two days I couldn't understand what is going on here. And then on the end, I said to myself, no, I must understand these people. It's not that they don't want anything to do with us. They are also protecting themselves through this virus. So at the same time, I said to myself, because I ended up staying in the room alone because the lady that I just stayed with had to leave. And I got so scared. And I even got sick. I called the, the reception uh, desk to ask them to bring me something for the pain that I had at that time. And that came, but the nurse didn't even bring anything. She only asked what was wrong with me, and I told her what was wrong with me. And she said, no, it's fine. It will be okay. It's nothing serious. You can go to sleep, and then we'll see tomorrow how it goes. And I was so scared as I'm saying that I was alone in that room. I didn't even know what was going to happen to me. And I even had an anxiety because of fear. I didn't know whether... I will die or what is going to happen here. But of that, I chose to come to this isolation because I didn't want to infect anyone that I was staying with. So this was a better place for me to come. And I'm saying thanks to health department for what they are doing for people like me. Because some people don't even, they are not even fortunate like me to have a big place. Some are staying in one place, in one room, while they are even 20 of people. And they don't have access to these isolation places. And most of them now are getting so scared to go to isolation places of stigmatization because of the thing that people from isolation are saying that people, they don't care when come to see you, you're on your own and all that, which is, we are there for isolation, yes. Take care of yourself. They allow you to bring anything that you would like to bring with. And I think that way, that's what made me better because I always call my family and even their staff, they don't 
take long to bring whatever the family brought uh, for me. They will bring it to my room immediately. And obviously, they will leave it outside uh, the door. And the issue with uh, COVID-19 at the moment is this stigmatization, even though I was never being stigmatized. But the lady that I stayed with was even scared to go back home because she was saying to me, my neighbors are going to see me when I get out of this car. I had to organize someone to come and, and, and fetch and take her home just to avoid that because I could see that she was not prepared at all to go home with the health department's car. So it, it's really a problem. And it's not only in, in our communities, even at work. In my case, I was asked to go and redo the test again. And I was so traumatized when I went back for this test again because it took me back to the day I went for that test. And I told my management, I said to them, how can you ask me to go and retest again? Why? The labor said there's no need for a person now to go back and do the retest. But they said, no, we need to see those results. We need to see the negative results. Then I said to them, that means even if I get my results back in January, that means I'll only go back to work in January. And what if the medical aid refused to pay for this second test? They say then you'll have to go to government hospital. So really that, that didn't sit well at all with me. That's all I can say. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. For sharing your story, I think it's important that we get stories of people who have been through the experience of going to a quarantine facility, who have had the experience of being reliant on on another COVID patient for a lot of that support, which a lot of people don't have out in the communities. And I hope that uh, stories such as this can become that that island of support for those who who don't have somebody to to rely on in that way. Uh, we have. Another one of our COVID-19 survivors, I believe. Please uh, go ahead. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Priscilla Zama. I'm 51 years of age, a mother of three. A mother of three. And on the 23rd, 22nd of May, I went for a testing because I had some symptoms. I'm working for a GP. I used to see people coming, complaining of the symptoms. So they have to be sent to go for testing. Then I started having those same symptoms like uh, I had a shot of breath. I was feeling uh, down. I had body pains. I had a sharp pain at my back. I was feeling cold. So then my doctor said, okay, just go for a testing. So I don't have a medical aid. I have to go to Vincent Palotti for a testing. That was a Friday morning. Saturday, around about six, my result came back and they said it was detected. I was like, oh gosh, but I already knew because of the, of the symptoms that I'm, it might be that I'm positive. Then I found one of my friends that I met on, we met on Facebook, uh, I call her my queen mother. And she, I told her that uh, I've tested positive. She, she said to me, don't worry, don't panic. I'm going to create a group for all positive, uh, COVID-19 positive patients. Then she started creating those groups. We started five. We were only five COVID-19 positive patients. That group, uh, it helped me a lot. It helped every one of us a lot because they were sharing everything. If we've got a pain, 
t- you, you talk to the group that I've got a pain here, I've got this, I've got that. They will respond immediately. They will tell you what to do. They will tell you, buy this, buy that, do this, do that. It was, that group, it was very, very, very helpful. It came in a very right time while we were started having COVID-19 um, positive because we didn't know much about this virus. Even now, we don't even know much about this virus. In the area where I live, people are just walking around like it's Christmas. They don't even recognize this virus. They didn't even know that this virus exists. They know nothing. They are walking around without no mask. They don't sanitize. They're having brides. They're having parties. They, it's like, to them, it's like a Christmas. It's not like we are facing this pandemic a dilemma. So to me, it's like people, they are living on the other world while we are living on the other side of the world. So I don't know, but uh, with this group of mine, when we started, we were five, but now we... Have about, we are more than 500 uh, uh, positive patients that are in the group. And this group is helping us a lot. With this group, we are, uh, we are gaining a lot of information about this virus. There are people here on this group who are working with the Department of Health. So they tell us every day what to do, what to expect. Don't panic. Because when I went for the testing, like when the result came back, then I isolated for two weeks. I was at home. I stayed at home in my room. Then after two weeks, I have to go back to work. And I was really, I was really scared because we, I'm working at the GP and we're seeing a lot of sick patients. So I was scared. Then I went to a doctor, to another doctor, and, and asked for another week because I said, doctor, I'm still, I'm still not uh, fully covered. So I'm still scared of this thing. If Am I going to get it again? Then the doctor said, no, you might not get it again, but you must be cautious. You must wash your hands, sanitize each and every day. Every day in the house, at work, wherever you go, you must sanitize. Even your kids at home must sanitize. You must do the same. Even at work, they must do the same. So, okay, then I stayed another week. Then I have to go back at work. When we at work, the other uh, staff, they were like, "Mm, how did you guys come back? Because we're only six that were tested positive at my workplace. So they started like with this stigmatization, like, they're asking the doctor, why did we come back early? We should have go and do another retest. What if uh, they're going to get this virus from us? They, they, there was a, a lady that works in the theater section. She even said to her sister, don't go to the place where Priscilla is working because maybe she left that virus on a desk. And I was kind of like, okay, it's only God knows because I don't know. I haven't done anything wrong. It's just that I've got a virus as I'm working with sick people. Obviously, I was going to get it anyway. You see, so I was kind of um, hurt, but I was fine because I said, only God knows. So everyone is going to get this virus. The way things are looking at right now, everyone is getting sick because there's a lot of ignorance. They just do whatever. They don't care, especially in Cape Town. They think it's Christmas. They don't consider that this virus is dangerous. This virus is very dangerous. We have lost lots of our family members, lots of our friends through this virus. So to see people walking around around like there's nothing happening, I feel so bad because I don't know how to speak to them. Because when you try to tell them, guys, this thing is killing, they say, have you seen anyone that you know that have died? And now you say, okay, it's fine, but I'm not, I don't want anyone to come in my house without wearing any mask. I don't want anyone, anybody 
coming to my, my just for visit or for whatever reason that may be. So that is it. We still need more info. We need more teaching of how to prevent this virus from getting to more and more and more people getting affected with this virus because there is a, a lack of information. The information is not enough. And the Kaidicha is a big area. So I don't know, but we as this group have started, me and my colleagues are trying our best. Even at work, I'm trying to teach them as they come for testing. Like if they go to Peske and the results come back, I speak to them, listen, Sisi, it's not the end of the world. Just keep yourself warm. Stay at home. Stay indoors. Go out when you're going to buy a medication. Wear your mask each and every time. Wherever you are, you must have your mask. You must buy a hand sanitizer to sanitize your hands. That's all. That's all we can tell them. But it seems like we are talking to people, they don't listen. They don't take it seriously. Let me say, they don't take it seriously. It's like a game to them. It's like we were playing. So you just keep on thinking, God, it's only God that can save us in this deadly virus. Because once they use you, protect yourself. And they, there comes this person who is ignorant. And he comes here or she comes in the house or he comes to your workplace. She comes to your workplace with that ignorant. And she, and oh gosh, it's only God knows. But I am a proudly South African COVID survivor because I've got mobilities, I'm asthmatic, I've got high blood pressure, I've got diabetes, but I try by all means to prevent this thing, to do all what needs to be done, to take some more precautions, to sanitize, to stay, in, to stay at home. I just go out when I go shopping to buy medicine, not just to go like visit friends or whatever. No, that is it. So we need more info about this virus. We need more uh, people to teach people how about this deadly virus because it's killing our friends. It's killing our family. It's killing everyone that we know. It's not a game, guys. This virus is not a game. It's not a game. It's not something that we need to play with. We must just take it seriously. I thank you. Thank you very much, Priscilla. I think you've raised a few very important points. And I'm very fascinated in hearing about this support group that you're involved in. Um, I'm going to call on uh, Nashe to go ahead. I believe he might have Nadisa on the line. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Nadisa Kabazi. Uh, on, in May this uh, year, I tested. Uh, positive on corona. I uh, uh, I was feeling uh, sick, which was on which was on Thursday. Then I got flu. Then the following day, I went to the clinic. Then I get tested. On Tuesday, my results came back and they were positive. They called me. They told me that uh, I'm positive. So like I was shocked. I, I didn't know what to do, what is going to happen, and they told me that someone is going to uh, come and take me to an um, isolation. Then I waited the whole day. No one is calling, no one is coming. I panicked because at home we are eight people and the house is small. So I was afraid that I will infect everyone in, in the house. I tennis, I tennis, 
but no one called, no one came. Okay. Then the following day, I tried to call some people. I called and then I told them that I tested positive and I want to be removed because I'm going to infect uh, my family. And there's an old woman in my house. My mom is over six. So my fear was that I will infect her and it will be difficult for her to recover. And then Mom Katile from uh, sub-district, she called me and she told me that, okay, they received a call, so they will come and remove, remove me to an isolation. Yes, I went to isolation, but when I arrived there, I, it wasn't like the way I was expected to be, because there, I didn't see uh, medicines, I didn't see anything that is medical. It's a hotel. You, you are in a hotel and you are not seeing anyone. You, only you alone. And they told me that you are, you will be out after 14 days. Okay. I expected that in time they will come give me some medicines or someone will come ask me questions, how I, how I feel, how am I at that time, like no one is coming. So I called my family, told them that, okay, I'm here, there's nothing here, it's only me, I don't see anyone, I don't see a nurse, a doctor, no one, so please, can you buy me some, something that I can use here? Thank they bought me lemons and ginger so that I can drink the, the, the mixture there. So I thought maybe tomorrow will be, there will be someone. But even tomorrow, same story, no one is coming. Don't see anyone. Only thing that they do is to knock on your door. When you open the door, don't see anyone, only your foot at the door. So I was like, I will. But, okay, I stayed in there. Uh, like I was, sometimes I can feel that, okay, today I'm coughing. Then when I call them in the reception, I'm feeling a, a cold or I'm coughing today. I expect that maybe they will come with medicine, but nothing. I had to call my brother, say, okay, I'm coughing today. Can you please buy me some medicines? Then my brother would buy me medicines and come with my medicines. I only see someone the time I was touched. A doctor came in my door and then she asked me, how are you feeling? Okay, I'm going home today. Just like that. I didn't have to test again. Like, I, I don't know. In the hotel, it was nice because you are in a hotel, you get food, only food. But if I didn't have my brother or my family to come and give me some medicines or anything I wanted, I don't think I would be recovered because I was sick there. I was sick. I have my days that I can feel that 
day it's difficult for me, but no one is coming to check on you. How are you today? How is it going on? No one. So I stayed there, back home. My mother was sick. I infected her. She was very sick. She went there, uh, tested, but the results were not coming back. And one day, she went to the clinic and saying that she's very sick. She, she, she's struggling to breathe. But at the clinic, they turned her back. They said, no, we don't have space for sick people, then you must go home. My brother had to take her to the private doctor because she was very, very, very sick. So I, I wasn't feeling well there because I was thinking of my mother. And I, I was rushing to go home because I want to take care of her. She's at home with uh, little children. It's me who's the older in the house. So I had to go and take care of my mother. Then after, I think after seven days, they discharged me. I went back home and my mother's results came back and she was positive. But the clinic said there's nothing they can do. We have to take care of her at home. But how did they check the house that she is living in? Did they check or did, did they thought about her age? So I was not okay at all, but I, we had to try to take care of her so that she can be okay. But eventually she, she recovered and I recovered. Uh, the, the health system failed us. I can say that the health system failed us because she was old and she was very sick. So if you are poor, you don't have money, you are staying in like this community, like I'm saying, you are, this is bad for you because there is nothing they are doing for what. Yes, COVID is there. And COVID, like if you, you are positive, COVID is very painful. It's very, very painful, but the health system uh, is failing us. So, yeah, that's it. Thank you, Nadisa, for sharing that with us. I think it's good that we get a range of different stories here about um, the experiences, not only of, of going into Q&I, quarantine and isolation facilities, but also of caring for family members at home, of testing challenges and delays, and also of just the, the uncertainty when you don't have other uh, people to to show you what the experience is like um, for many people um, of recovery. I'm cognizant of the time that we have left. That was the last of our, our speakers. And so I would just like to briefly summarize what we talked about today and want to thank our, our speakers and our COVID survivors or, or perhaps our COVID champions who are active not only in this space, but in their communities and in their families and with their peers in, in spreading this information about um, what you can do to protect yourself and what the experience of, of COVID is to de demystify it. Uh, we had 
Comrade Bevel Lucas speaking of housing as more than just a, a physical structure, but a social structure that is important. And there's a, there's a certain amount of proactivity that is required, proactive activism to ensure that education and planning around uh, protecting people at risk is done within, within homes where the state is not able to, to act as, as responsibly. There's also the importance of his discussion that took place between the time of him testing and him getting results about how he would approach uh, isolating, whether he would move into a, a quarantine facility. And then also the experience of the quarantine and isolation facilities itself with regards to nutrition and challenges of, of how you keep families connected. We also then had him speaking of, of returning to back home and, and stigma uh, there with regard with other, other cases and therefore the importance of an existing network to call on existing NGOs, civil society structures that can be leveraged to provide support in terms of simple things from hand sanitizer to food to information uh, distribution. We then had Lebukhanga um, Ramafoko, who spoke quite in depth on the virus itself as, a, as an unseen eventuality that becomes associated not just with the, the sort of simple medical side of it, of, of you getting infected, you getting a cough, etc., but also becomes associated with the impact that the virus has on the population. So with COVID-19, with HIV, it was around sexuality and gender. And with COVID-19, it becomes around this idea of restriction and, and the fear perhaps even of um, the response uh, if, if one does disclose one's, one's status. And communication is only one thing. It's, it's not the near. You can't just give information and expect it to be taken up. Uh, it requires changing the message around if you got the disease, you weren't complying. Um, and a great depth of understanding. And of course, that social media is a blessing and a curse. And then also that we see an association between being made in people's minds between COVID-19 and race and class, precisely because those class structures prevent people from being able to adequately isolate and adopt those social distancing measures that we are calling for because of, of, of financial and other needs. We had... Um, Sanede and uh, Priscilla both speak to us on their experiences of, of being COVID uh, positive and, and proudly COVID positive. I thought that was a nice uh, term and the importance of having someone to share the experience with and to be aware of stories of people who have gone through similar struggles. And then and hopefully that these stories through things like support groups that were mentioned can, can become tools for for other people who don't have that information ready at hand and are feeling uncertain. Uh, we also then had Adisa speaking of the experience in, in a quarantine facility that without that support, without that having that, that peer to communicate with and of the challenges of that delays and results um, and caring for family because of a very overstrained health system um, can present. So I think that we've spoken in depth about the sort of issues that, that can arise um, and have arisen in, in this unprecedented time, and particularly around approaching COVID-19 and, and stigma through a human rights approach, recognizing that people have the rights to dignity and, and to healthcare, and that we need to be 
disseminating messages that are not just linear, as, as was phrased, but that are empowering communities, enabling them to, to take their own innovative approaches to caring for people, to protecting the vulnerable, and to removing this, this stigma that is not the stigma of fear and replacing it with information and, and power. So I think with that, with our two minutes left, I'm going to close. Thank you very much to everyone who participated and particularly to our speakers from the People's Health Movement. Please do keep following us on uh, social media and look out for our upcoming webinars um, on different topics. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.